At one point, um, I did attempt suicide. And that night, I kind of left the faith temporarily because I believed, you know, if God is loving and all of this other stuff, then why would he allow children to suffer this? Comey Media Group proudly presents Revelations with Cole Johnson. Welcome to Revelations, where we communicate truth to power. I'm Cole Johnson, and I am so glad you're able to join us. She's a mother, an author, a podcast host, and most importantly, a Christian. I don't just say that. She states it herself. Ladies and gentlemen, the next guest on Revelations, Rebecca Lemke. Hopefully you'll be stirred as was I, because this is her revelation. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, I'm excited that you're here. All right. So you come from Oklahoma. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Where in Oklahoma did you grow up? A really, really, really tiny town in Northwest Oklahoma called Lahoma. You take off the OK off of Oklahoma and that's where I'm from. Lahoma. So that actually is a real city. OK. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> See, all this time I always thought it was a joke. Okay. <laughs> Not saying the city is a joke. I always thought that the mentioning of it was a joke. I'm like, oh, okay. Now I know it was a real city. Okay. Yeah. So how was? Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, it's like right next to Enid. Most people know where Enid is. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I do too. Uh, <laughs> that is great. Uh, so how was your time growing up in Lahoma, Oklahoma? It was pretty decent. Um, I went to public school for the first year of schooling. So I went from kindergarten to first grade. And then at at kind of the beginning of first grade, my mom said, we're going to pull you out and homeschool you. What do you think about that? And we, my sister and I were just like, "Hmm, okay. And from there, we joined some homeschool groups, some 4-H groups, and a couple different other things. And things went pretty well for several years. Um, I did okay with a lot of different school stuff for a long time. And then, uh, you know, algebra, algebra sucked. But other than that, everything was fine. And then when I turned, um, I think I was 11 or 12, things started to kind of take a turn for the worst. I lost a lot of my friends in a really bad homeschool group split. And I didn't see them for a long time. There was another group split that we were a part of that also went very, very poorly. So I lost basically my entire support group and community all at once as a 12-year-old, which is difficult. And then um, just the abruptness and some of the things included in that were very, very traumatic for me. I also developed um, Epstein-Barr, which is kind of like mono, and it put me on the couch for about three months. (laughs) And uh, the medication that they gave me to try to kind of reduce symptoms and things didn't really work. So I was pretty miserable throughout that whole thing. And I got very depressed and anxious. And over the course of time during that era of my life, I also developed some mental health issues, um, including anorexia and suicidal tendencies. Go back a second. Didn't I, did I hear you say that you actually studied algebra before you were in high school? A little bit, not too much. Um, gosh, my (laughs) My dad was really, really good at math. He has dyslexia, which is part of the reason I was homeschooled. My parents 
initially thought that we might develop it as well. And the public school system where we were at was not very equipped to deal with it, especially when my dad was young. They didn't want us to have the same experience. So just in preparation, they kind of took us out and homeschooled us instead. But he was very good at math. So I could do multiplication up to like 10 times 10 and 100 in the hundreds a little bit uh, by the time I was done with kindergarten. So he kind of, mm. he didn't really follow the the general structure of teaching me math as, as it is normally in public schools. No, your father's teaching you to be an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> so you graduated uh, in homeschooling. Uh, what is your overall opinion of it? You know, I think it's one of those things that is morally neutral. And you'll hear me say this about a lot of things, but there's so many people who have had wonderful, wonderful experiences with homeschooling. And then there's a bunch of people who have really terrible experiences with homeschooling. Mine was kind of a mix from everything that we endured. And I try to use it for something good and and to show God's grace and mercy in my life. Mm. And we're going to get to that, too, later. Christianity is a big part of my my life. So we definitely talk about that later. Yeah. So you mentioned that you were dealing with a lot of issues in your formative years and growing up into the woman that you are now. And I'm assuming that since you have a blog and that you are an author, you have this. uh, How can I say this love affair with writing? Yes. (laughs) Although. You know, I actually, my parents were very, very good about this. They did not make me write when I was a kid. There was a couple times that my mom made me write essays about vacations or something like that. But she could tell at that point in time, I hated writing. And so she didn't force it, even though we were supposed to be doing certain curriculums and things like that. She tried for a little while and then just gave up because it wasn't working for us. She just let us do our own thing. So instead of making us do writing and all of that stuff, she let me, when I wanted to, write my own like fictional Scooby-Doo books, which she still has on the counter at home. I don't know why I would... I would probably burn them if I saw them now because I'm sure they're terrible. But um, so I didn't really have any formal writing training or experience until I got to college. And when I got to college, um, I I initially had some problems just like fitting in with the college atmosphere, but I didn't have problems actually writing. And while it was kind of a chore during college, it, it became a compulsion later on. I started my blog my first blog um, when my son was about four months old. He had had his own traumatic story in his very, very young life. When I was pregnant, we had problems. When he was born, he had problems. And then he went to the NICU and there was all this other stuff. And so that was very traumatic for the both of us. And we had problems bonding because of it. And at that point in time, I, when I was about three or four months postpartum, was really at the worst of the postpartum depression and anxiety and that kind of thing. And I started a blog at like two o'clock in the morning uh, as I was nursing him to sleep because I was like, something's wrong. I don't feel right. I don't know what to do, but this just seems like the right thing to do. And so I started it and it was initially supposed to be a crunchy mom blog that was, you know, about breastfeeding and cloth diapering and things like that. Because, you know, some people are like, ooh, cloth diapering and which, you know, I'm the same way. I actually think it's gross too. I just, it's cheaper for us. So, um, but anyways, so it was supposed to be kind of natural mom type stuff, but as it grew, I really started reflecting on some of the things from my childhood because once you have a child, you inadvertently think of all the things that went wrong for you and the things that you'd like to shield them from. And so that just came up as I was writing and I wrote 
an article on purity culture and an article on modesty that got shared in homeschooling circles. And at that point in time, I kind of was interested in doing more, but I didn't want to rock the boat. So I put it on the back burner for a while and just did more of the crunchy mom type stuff. But a few months after that, I had really noticed that the groups I was in, the crunchy mom groups were a lot more liberal than I am, which, you know, I don't like using the political terms because I'm not either. I'm not really liberal or conservative or really anything because I just fall in so many different areas on so many different things that I find it really hard to classify myself. And I don't like to demonize people. So (laughs) it's really difficult for me. But there was a degree to which their ideology was very hypocritical and uh, very demeaning towards Christians. And that was something that I could no longer tolerate after a certain point, after being very nice and respectful and bringing things up and being told I was making things up and being gaslighted. I was like, okay, I'm not okay with using the term crunchy mom anymore because this is largely what I've seen of these types of people. So I want to do something different. And my husband helped me move domains. We've had like three domains with my blog as it currently stands. I started out on WordPress with a free blog. And once that took off, I got like picked up by a a national um, blogging competition, basically. And I was secret at the time. So I didn't want anyone to know that I was blogging. And I ended up winning the competition. So everybody knew at that point (laughs) that I was blogging. And so after that, we moved to a domain with my own name, RebeccaLemke.com. And I was freed up. I could finally talk about my faith. I could finally talk about all the things from childhood, whatever I wanted, I could talk about. And so during that time, one of my friends was he he'd read something of mine that I wrote that I hadn't published and it was kind of about childhood and he told me Rebecca I'm going to be honest with you I think you need to pursue this because I was throwing around the idea of maybe a book about you know my anorexia and the mental health problems and all that just growing up in general kind of autobiographical and so he kind of pushed me towards that and I started writing this was last June and since then I wrote during nap time and whenever I got a chance, it's just a compulsion now, basically. Um, I can't not write. And so I wrote for basically an entire year. I finished the manuscript at the end of Lent. That was my goal, my third goal that we had set. And I got it done. We got it sent off to beta readers and editors and all that stuff. And it actually got published, which has been insane. (laughs) Writing a book in a year, very compulsively, I might add, with a two-year-old, well, one to two-year-old, is very difficult. Um, But I am so glad I did it. The response has been amazing. And it's, it's been nice to know that my compulsive writing issues are going towards something good. (laughs) Good, good, good. Oh, and, and, don't don't tell anybody this. This is a secret too. <laughs> I'm an, I'm an independent as well. Yeah. <gasps> I love you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, political labels. Yeah. I could go on yeah. a rant for that. Oh, I'm glad I'm not alone. It's so frustrating. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, where did you go to college? Firstly, I've been to three different colleges. I've been to Northwestern in um, Enid, Oklahoma. Okay. I did two to three semesters there. I have done online at Rose State University um, or Rose State College in Midwest City. I didn't actually attend campus at all except for tests, <laughs> which has been my favorite. I love Rose State. I am so much better as an online student than I am as an in-person on-campus student because the way I was raised and and I'm just... I try to think the best of everybody and that doesn't work in college. <laughs> There's a lot of people <laughs> who go after you to like 
kind of graft you into their circles or push their agenda on you. And so <laughs> little old homeschooler me going to college at 16 got into some trouble with that. Um, but uh, yeah, so I went to Rose State. And then um, my last semester of college, I spent at the University of Oklahoma. And I spent that semester pregnant and very, very sick. <laughs> but uh, I got it done. So that brings me to this question. So I, I also didn't mention this. You actually published an Huffington uh, Post article. Yes, I did. One that has a very interesting title. Yes. <laughs> An unlikely friendship between a pregnant collegiate and a gentle black man. I mean, the 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 how can I put this? The 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 buttons that the title itself pushes yeah. <laughs> are enormous. <laughs> so explain that article. And I'm getting the feeling that it is. But I'll ask it anyway. Is this article autobiographical? It is. Yes. And I. The guy that that article is about, I love him to death. I miss him so much. Um, <laughs> we actually had a lot of problems trying to write the title for that article because um, I wanted to. I wanted to say, you know, I, I just wanted to make like a fictional title or whatever. But the people I was corresponding with were like, no, it needs to be descriptive. It needs to be kind of you know catchy or whatever. And so once the article was actually published, I had this woman come after me and say I was being insensitive and used. Uh, cultural appropriation, something like that, because I use the word gentle. And she was, she was like, how dare you? How dare you do that? You've just like, I don't even remember what exactly she said, but she was just like, you just stereotyped him. And I was like, it's a genuine description. Like he was an amazing person. I'm really sorry I offended you. But yeah, so you can't do anything right with blogging. I don't know. It's very difficult for me because I always have that one person that's like, <laughs> right. Yeah. So, but yeah, no, I, I named him Morph, the guy in the story, because I wanted to keep his identity secret. He didn't actually know that I wrote the article. It was originally published on one of my blogs. And once it got accepted to the Huffington Post, I wrote him and I was like, hey, are you okay with this? And he was so excited. He was like, oh my goodness, yes. So at the time, it was just kind of an article to you know thank him for what he did for me because he protected me from quite a bit and really cared for me while I was pregnant at college. And he was one of the only people that was excited that I was pregnant and very, very supportive. And he was one of the only other Christian students that I knew. So we were kind of glommed together and like, okay, everybody's nuts around us, but at least we have each other. So it was just kind of to pay tribute to him because he was amazing and I could not have I could not have gotten through it without him. Yeah. One of the greatest gifts that, that God presents to us is friendship. And you, you just never know from what package it, it's wrapped up in the type of person that it comes, that it comes from. It just, it just is there. So you talked about your blog that you started. So you originally called it crunchy mom. Yeah. Yeah. I, okay. I called it like, that new crunchy mom or something like that. And then we moved to a self-hosted domain that was new crunchy mom, but that was kind right. of the theme. Right. So, okay. So that's what I thought. So it morphed into new crunchy mom. Yeah. But the one thing I noticed when I saw that blog was that it talked about a whole lot of issues that I don't think we all don't fully grasp that mothers actually think about. And, <laughs> and just by your blog, it, the answer to that is yeah, mothers think, about a whole host of things. So uh, what propelled you to actually write some of the stuff that you write now for the new crunchy mom? Well, 
At the time when I was really on New Crunchy Mom, a lot of the things were just stuff that was either brought up because of things that my son, like things that I was seeing when I took my son to playdates and things. So, you know, older kids interacting with each other and just bringing back memories um, and just worrying for the future for him with, you know, the relationships he might have and things like that. And also the political landscape around me um, towards Christianity was also something that spurred a lot of those things because there's a lot of identity politics that is in the groups, in the mom groups here. And so that was very, very painful for me because I refused to participate. I refused refused to bash people and do all these things. And uh, that made me an outcast. And but it wasn't just that I refused to do that, but I also criticized hypocrisy openly as much as I could lovingly. And that also made me an outcast with those groups. So it was just kind of me working through that as well, working through not having a place in the mom community here. And it's amazing how writing can do that, how you have this this platform where you start to make sense of the world around you. Just by putting words on paper or in your, in this case, words online, you know, (laughs) it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And, and seeing all of this stuff that you wrote for new crunchy mom and then linking it to your, your book, the Scarlet Virgins, I said, okay, I'm seeing parallels here. So (laughs) I, I think I sort of got the motivation as to what spawned the Scarlet Virgins, but I don't want to speculate. So what motivated you to write? your new book that you released, The Scarlet Virgins. So this goes back to the time when I was around 12, when I lost basically all of my friends. Right before that happened, within a year or two, a love note was passed around one of the groups that I was in. And that basically changed the landscape of how I would interact with men for the rest of my life. The reaction that the parents had to that love note was so much that... We were segregated in some ways where we couldn't talk to boys in the hallway by ourselves. We could, we had to be so far away from them walking. Um, we couldn't have any kind of conversation that wasn't in a group. We had people coming up to us and telling us that we needed to adjust our bra straps when we'd like just gotten bras. We didn't know how to use them. We didn't know how to adjust the straps. So there were strange women coming up that were friends of our parent, like our parents' friends that were just taking our clothes and moving them, which was very embarrassing as a young child. And um, there were some other things. They taught us that crushes were giving your heart away and were the essence of kind of an emotional STD that would follow you into your marriage. Um, Hand-holding, hugging, kissing, all that sort of thing were the spiritual equivalent of having had sex outside of marriage. So they were all wrong. You should wait until your wedding day for all of them and all that sort of stuff. So all of those things happening at that point in time fed into a few other things that happened. There was a friend that I had that was raped by her brother. She was just younger than I was, and the boy was about four or five years older than I was. And there was a weapon involved, and it it took place in a house that I had been in very, very recently. So that very much shook me. And the community response to that as well was really what pushed me over the edge to where I became quite paranoid of men. They said that it was her fault, um, that, you know, it could have been what she wore. She provoked him, whatever. He had his 
five minutes of fun and all this other stuff. And I had been taught that modesty was important and purity was important and all that sort of thing. But at that point in time, I really, really got scared. And I threw out a bunch of my clothes that I thought were immodest, which really weren't. But I was scared to wear anything above my kneecaps. Um, I wore long dresses that kind of went to my ankles and covered up my collarbone and all that sort of thing. And, you know, we were taught that the girls were supposed to swim in long shirts and jeans and things like that. So that was kind of the snapshot of what was going on at that point in time. And then with losing everybody shortly afterwards, it was just the perfect storm. But it wasn't just the perfect storm for me. It was also the perfect storm for my friends. So at the time that I developed anorexia and I developed, you know, suicidal tendencies and things like that, they did as well. And while we were separated and I had no real idea of what was going on, somehow I knew. I knew they were in trouble. I could feel it. I could tell for me. And it just unnerved me to no end. I couldn't reach them. I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have an email address. They didn't have a cell phone or email address because we were homeschool kids. And so we were all isolated dealing with this by ourselves. And at one point, um, I did attempt suicide. And that night, I kind of left the faith temporarily because I believed, you know, if God is loving and all of this other stuff, then why would he allow children to suffer this? Why would we have to deal with this? Why would be why would we be separated in such a, in a manner that's so aggressive and so you know full of brokenness? And at that point, it was you know a couple months, and they were pretty rocky. But I got out of that. I kind of got to the other side of the tunnel and went, okay, if I'm going to live and I'm going to survive this, I want to be able to help them because if they are hurting the way I suspect they are, then they are going to need somebody that I didn't have now. Like somebody's going to need be the person that I needed then. And if nobody else is willing to do it, then I'm going to step up and I'm going to make that sacrifice. And so that was what the book was. That was my laying it all out, laying out all the problems I've dealt with, including, you know, different forms of self-harm and anorexia and, and everything, and including things that other people deal with as well. And just laying it all out there and, making it public with my name attached to it. So people know it's not some anonymous person. It's not some alumni that's bitter and angry. No, I made sure that I was not before I published it. I went back and changed some things that I had written because I went through Joshua Harris's I Kissed Dane Goodbye and I realized I'd been lied to about some of the things he had said. And I went back and I saw him for who he was, a 21-year-old trying to change the landscape of the sexual market in a time that was very, very promiscuous. He didn't realize what was going to happen with his book. Yeah, some of the things he wrote were incorrect theologically. Yeah, they had consequences. But I saw him for who he was at the time and who he is now. And, you know, all the other leaders of the movement as well. And so I made sure that I was theologically correct and spiritually correct before actually publishing because I wanted to make sure that the book promoted healing, not just for people like me, but for people who might not make the same decisions I did and might be parents or leaders or, you know, even Joshua Harris. If, if that helps him, then I would love that. So that's kind of the, the framework of the book is of how it got written and, and kind of what the intent is. And the the vision that I somewhat get is all of what you endured in the past was sort of like a scarlet letter. And yes, yeah, you're writing this book sort of peeled off all the letters that was 
attached and probably sewn onto your body off of you. And that is a powerful image. I mean, it's a powerful image just to, just to have something that is a healing tool and you actually produce it yourself. Yeah. That, yeah. That, and, and when I, when I saw the word scarlet, that's the first thought I had. I was like, wow. So this is a person that's wearing this type of stuff on her. And I must, and, and, and this is before, <laughs> before I actually talk to you now. And the book was that process where it was the tearing off of saying, I'm not this. I'm not anorexia. I'm not, I'm not promiscuous. I'm not this thing. I'm not that thing. I am Rebecca. And I'm, and, and yeah, this and is not going to be my identity because my identity is tied to something else. Yeah. And that identity is in Christ and washed in his blood and made white and all of that sort of thing. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I could not agree more with that. All right. So this book that you wrote turned into a podcast. Your story about this is really interesting. So how did the Scarlet Virgins, the podcast begin? And why is it necessary for you? So my husband, when we were writing the book, told me two things. He said, you need to do a podcast tour and you need to do your own short run podcast. And I kind of went, I don't know how to produce those kind of things. I'm not very good at Adobe Audition. And if you do it, then I might consider it. So he said, yeah, I'll do it. So we wrote down some topic ideas. I outlined a bunch of stuff. We went ahead and recorded 12 episodes and it was supposed to be short run. That was supposed to be it. But the first day it was released, we saw a huge spike in the listens and it was incredible. And all of a sudden I get this tweet from Thomas Umstead Jr., who is the author of Courtship and Crisis. And he went, hey, I'm listening to your podcast. (laughs) And he almost died. Um, I was very shocked. And he loved it. And he actually advised us to go ahead and make it a long-term thing. And we thought about it. And I was like, okay, I guess so. I mean, maybe. (laughs) Well, (laughs) then my audience started asking, will you do one on this? Will you do one on this? Will you do one on this? And they kept sharing it. And I kept getting emails from people and private messages on Facebook where they were in tears going, your episode helped me so much. I can't believe I'm not the only one. Why are you the only one talking about this? Thank you so much. You're so brave and all of these different things. And I kind of went, all right, well, I guess we're doing this. (laughs) (laughs) So it is now a long-term podcast and we try to get one out every Friday. But I, I've done so many topics on it. I've done self-harm. I've done um, hangups in marriage. The last one was on masturbation. I have a recording of a live radio show that I did with Thomas Umstadt, um on the bridge in Texas and a bunch of other things. So there's tons of different things and I'm on always taking requests. So, mm-hmm. Well, that's good to know. Okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure my wife would probably uh, ask, do an episode on being a football widow. <laughs> <laughs> I could probably do that actually. That might be fun. <laughs> so yeah, I, I'm I'm sure my wife would probably say, "Yeah, do that one, please." I'll be interested in listening to it. So I'm beating her to the punch and saying it myself. <laughs> I'm actually going to write that down and totally outline that. That was uh-huh. I can I can definitely do that. I'm, it's happening now. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Well, I will. I will. Uh, Go here now, then. So how did you <laughs> I'm assuming the football widow in, in in question here is in relation to, I guess, the relationship you have with your husband. So how did you meet this wonderful man and how is he instrumental in the creative process to what you have done in 
your book and in your podcast. So I met him at church and our relationship was super duper scandalous. <laughs> oh, um, we met, yeah, we met two years after the group split. I was still interested in the boy that I had had a crush on since I was seven um, because I was still hanging on to that because I didn't want an emotional STD. <laughs> and he was interested in somebody else as well. And he'd been waiting for her for a very long time. Well, things didn't work out in either area. And I was there for him and he was there for me. And we were best friends. <laughs> we talked every day after church all day. And we spent the evening outside of um, history study every Friday or sorry, Tuesday night. So we basically kind of talked there. We were both really interested in theology, all this different stuff. And, you know, we were both homeschooled. So we had, even though he'd been raised in a different area, we still had quite a bit in common. And I started talking to him about my quote unquote sister, which I do have a sister, um, but I was telling him what was happening with my anorexia because I knew something was wrong. I could tell I had kind of lost a lot of weight in my rib area and it was starting to show. And I couldn't breathe most of the time because my body was taking energy and muscle from my lungs to stay alive. I grew white hair all over my body to keep me warm. And I started blacking out at random times and things like that. And my heartbeat became irregular. And I knew that it was basically now or never. I was either going to have to choose recovery or choose to die. And so I started explaining to him what was happening, that I was worried about my sister and all this other stuff because he's a registered dietitian. So I was like, if anybody's going to be able to help me and potentially not tell my parents, then it's going to be this guy. And so... One day I finally told him, um, I'm scared. It isn't my sister. It's me. And I actually almost passed out because I was so nervous that my knee turned purple. <laughs> so he made me sit down. And after that, he gave me a BMI thing, a little um, measurement to be able to tell where I was at. And he told me where he wanted me. And so I was like, okay, I can do this. And um, he also sent me home with Quivering Daughters um, by Hillary McFarland, which was kind of a getting out of spiritual abuse and homeschooling situations as well. So that was very instrumental in helping me because I had a very skewed idea of the relationships between men and women. I had been taught that women were supposed to listen to the oldest man in the room, even if that guy was a teenager and wanted you to do something sexual. So that was very broken and not at all biblical. And so he spent a tearful Christmas Eve explaining to me what Jesus and the church and and that being the bride of Christ and all that. He taught me all of that in the proper context. And that basically blew my mind. Um, and so after that, he continued to kind of teach me good theology and teach me how to read scripture in context because I had been taught a lot of proof texting over the years. So he taught me that. And then Every Sunday afternoon, he would feed me and he'd just give me a couple of raisins at a time. And he'd be like, as soon as you get this, you're fine. You're good. You don't have to eat anymore. And so we just kept doing that all day long. <laughs> and so he basically nursed me back to health on raisins, sweet potatoes and chicken. <laughs> and um, after that, uh, the summer was about to end. I was working at a um, ice cream store, Brahms. I'm sure some of you have heard of it. And I got off work. And I had begun developing food allergies at that point in time, I suspect, because of what the anorexia did to my body um, and the stress of childhood. And I ate some ice cream before I got off and went to my grandma's house. And within that time frame, I started getting hives all up and down my body and started being un un unable to swallow and breathe. 
So my aunt rushed um, out there. She lived just a couple miles away and they tried to give me some medication to calm the reaction. But um, by the time we had reached Enid, we, they thought I was going to die. Um, my aunt was telling my mom, you need to be prepared. You need to be prepared. Um, I, my limbs had turned purple and my lips were turning purple and I couldn't really breathe very well. And I had gotten my husband, which was at that point, a friend's number. And I told them, I was like, I want to talk to him. I need you to call him. I want to talk to him before I can't talk anymore. And so they called him. And the first thing I said was, and I didn't even know what I was going to say. I was just like, I want to talk to Thomas. I want to talk to Thomas. I'm scared. And so he answered the phone and I said, I'm sorry. I didn't tell you before. I love you. And then my aunt took the phone and (laughs) well, he actually was, he waited a second. He was like, I love you too. Where are you at? Like they, they prepped him. They were like, she's in anaphylactic shock. Uh, something's wrong. We're on the way to the hospital. And they gave the phone to me. I told him that he said, I love you back. Gave the phone back to my aunt. She was explaining more because they're both in medical stuff. So they were able to like explain what was going on to each other. And he beat us there. He was at the hospital when we got there and he was like, Oh my gosh, are you okay? And like trying to hold me up and all that stuff. They got the reaction stopped and we went home and we didn't talk about it for months (laughs) because I was like 15 (laughs) and not ready to be dating yet. So we waited and waited. And I think it was a couple of weeks before my 16th birthday, which is the age of consent in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. And I kind of went, you know, I, um, I meant that. (laughs) wasn't sure that I was actually going to say it, but I meant it. And he kind of paused and he was like, ah, yeah, me too. (laughs) And so we kind of just tried to decide what we were going to do because we have a bit of an age difference. So even though the age of consent is 16, we were still concerned that people were going to talk and everything. So we kind of tried to decide. He talked to my parents and we started dating um, the day I turned 16. And we just held hands for months <laughs> because of the way that we had been taught. We were like, well, we don't exactly believe that physical contact before marriage is sinful. Yeah, premarital sex is, but we're we're not opposed to, you know, holding hands and kissing on the cheek and things like that. So we did that for several months. And then we got engaged when I was 17. We got married when I was two days past 18. I had my son two days before I turned 19. <laughs> So that's kind of been the progression. But yeah, my husband has been very instrumental in just helping me. Initially, when we were just friends, he actually started me two blogs uh, in secret just to help me kind of have an outlet for all of the tension that he realized that I had with the anorexia and everything. And I didn't talk about anorexia. I talked about sociology because that was my uh, niche in college. That was going to be my degree with sociology because I absolutely adore it. And so he started that for me and he started me a photography blog. And so that was when I started realizing that, oh, yeah, I can write um, and I can do content creation. And so after that, it wasn't a big deal. When when my son was four months old, I just started a blog on my own that he's always, always believed that I could just do whatever I wanted if I if I wanted to. And so that's just an unspoken thing in our household is, okay, I'm going to do something. And I know Thomas is going to back me up on it because he knows that I can, he knows that I'm capable. So he's been just the best support system I could ask for. Mm. That there's, there's nothing quite like a partner who, uh, who, who just has nothing but your best interest at heart. That's, that's, that's great. That's great. And it's wonderful that he, he, he helped bring you out of a lot of demons and, yes. and now has propelled you into a beautiful life that you're still growing into living now. And that's, that's, that's a beautiful thing. I love that. Love that. 
Yeah, I often tell him because I am quite certain that I would have died without him. And it makes him so uncomfortable when I say that because he's like, no, no, I'm sure you would have been fine. And I tell him, no, I wouldn't have. I was dying. Mm -hmm. I was like on death's doorstep, 82 pounds, like 15 BMI. It was bad. I probably would have died. And, you know, even if he wouldn't have come, I think I would have gone through. And this is something people always ask me. They're like, why didn't you go through a rebellious stage because of all these things? Like, why haven't you? And I tell them, well, my husband, because he taught me uh, the safe way to rebel, basically. He taught me that the truth is rebellious and speaking the truth is a way to rebel. (laughs) And also, you know, he has given me so much freedom with, you know, what I wear and what I do and all these different things. So I've never really had the inclination at this point in time because he's always been like, uh, you know, I mean, I would like you to not go (laughs) go crazy or anything, but I'm okay with you wanting to write and, and, you know, occasionally wear something that wouldn't have been accepted in the homeschool group. So that's been really, really instrumental as well. Mm, Yeah. It's great that you have a partner that can allow you to grow into who you were are you were created to be in the first place. Yes, and, I'm so thankful for him. Yeah, yeah. And the world will be thankful too because uh it's gonna mean that you're gonna bring a lot of healing to a lot of homes. Wow, that is great. Which brings me to this next question. Now, the tagline to your book, When Sex Replaces Salvation, was a very interesting subject matter for me just on those five four words alone. <laughs> So explain to me the purity culture in your eyes. So there's two different types of purity culture that I would say exist. One of them is a kind of Christian but government funded aspect that just puts an emphasis on waiting to have sex until you get married. The second one I would say is legalistic and it's the one that I grew up in. So it instead of just waiting to have sex until you get married, it says stay pure until you're married which has the implication of you're no longer pure when you get married. And there's also all of these other things. It, it basically tells you that your worth is found in your virginity or your purity, which are interchangeable in this culture, which is absolutely horrible and <laughs> very, very dangerous. Um, but that's basically the thing is your identity becomes whether or not you've had sex or if you've had sex at all. Um, and it, it is, in, it's found in what you do or don't do. And so in that, your sexual status replaces what Jesus did for you, what he did for the people who have had premarital sex, what he did for the people who, you know, have struggled with lust and all this other stuff and the people, even the people who have not. He took our sins and died for them. We are not defined by what we've done, but by his sacrifice for us. So this whole legalism thing where you have, you know, oh, I can achieve sexual purity. Well, I can achieve this and and that. Well, yeah, you could wait to have sex until you get married, but that's not the same thing as being sexually pure. And even if you are quote unquote sexually pure, you're still a wretched sinner. That's okay. so, So you have one thing that you're good at. Well, let me tell you, you're still screwed if you think that that's going to get you into heaven. <laughs> because the only thing that can do that is Jesus's blood. And finding our identity outside of that has had serious ramifications for many, many people. And that's why we chose that tagline, because that's essentially what happened is our identity was found in purity rather than in Jesus. Mm, yes. And that that is and that is a wonderful lesson to learn that, yeah, uh, when your identity is tied to something else outside of Jesus, 
no matter no matter the intention, it's never a good thing. <laughs> never. Yeah. And I've had I've had to learn that lesson so many times. I think it's just a lesson that I'm just going to have to keep learning because I found it in, you know, trying to be in certain homeschooling alumni circles. I tried to fit in there. I tried to be defined by that and it went poorly. I tried to do that with crunchy mom circles and it went poorly. I've tried to do it with, you know, spiritual abuse survivor type stuff and all these labels. And it always ends poorly because that's not what I should be finding my worth in. And that's something that I continue to learn even now. I don't know why it's such a hard lesson for me, but it is it is good for me to continue to see even in my own work. Like sometimes I look back at my stuff and I don't even remember that I did it. And it's something that I need at that moment where I need to be reminded that, yeah, this stuff isn't what's important for me. What's important for me is something that I don't even have control over, something that's already happened, that Jesus died for me. And so that's, you know, reassuring for even me. Mm-hmm. And trust me, this is not a battle that you face alone. Uh, if, if I'm going to be transparent, I face that battle too and have ever since I given my life to Christ. So it's, yeah, this isn't, <laughs> this, this isn't a unique walk for you in that, in that department. Now, how you come across it may be unique, but the fact that you do it, no, it's not unique because I, I have to do the same thing myself and I have to remember it. It's continual too, because, uh, yeah. Yeah. We can get caught up in, oh, yeah, I can do this because I've done this. I can rely on history. And I, you know, and I have this, the, I have this wonderful brain and I have a great heart. And oh, great. And I'm making myself the identity. Oh, okay, Lord. Okay. Reset. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Very familiar with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> You're not walking that battle alone. I can tell you that. <laughs> so all of this anorexia, suicide attempts, uh, making sense of purity culture and just making sense of life in general. It seems to have the one place where you actually can put all this down and focus on what truly matters. And that is the fact that you are the child of the most high God. So how has all of what you have endured and overcome affected your walk with Christ? Well, as I mentioned before, I did struggle, especially in my younger years when I was around 12. Um, I was raised LCMS Lutheran, so I went through confirmation when I was around 12 to 14. And it was basically two years of catechesis and things like that, where I was learning about the faith, learning about the church and all this different stuff and learning the creeds. And I remember there were so many times where I was so confused. I had always... Um, been taught to just memorize verses. I, I visited a lot of other churches, even though I've only ever belonged to the LCMS Lutheran Synod. And so I got a lot of my theology from my friends' churches rather than my church. And, you know, every church has its stuff. So I'm not saying, you know, oh, LCMS, <laughs> but, um, but we're pretty good about law and gospel. And that was one of the things that I was missing because everybody else's churches seem to have all the answers. And my pastor said, I don't know when he didn't know. And that was something that at the time frustrated me to no end. I was like, how could you not know? Other people are saying they know. Other people are saying they know when the world's going to end. Other people are saying they know, you know, whether Jesus had sisters and brothers or not. Other people are claiming all this other stuff. So how can you not know? You're supposed to be the expert here. And now that I've gotten older and, and everything, that was literally something that saved me. 
in my walk was that my pastor told me, I don't know. And he also told me that he struggled as well with the faith because it made him human. It made a servant of God who is ordained into the ministry human to me. It wasn't, oh, he's infallible because he's a pastor. Um, And it wasn't, you know, we as Christians need to have all the answers. He was honest with me. He said, when scripture is silent, we are supposed to stay silent as well. At least don't be dogmatic about it. And that was something that was just very frustrating at the time, but now mind blowing to me that he set the foundation for me to stay in the faith through that. Because now I am comfortable with not knowing all the answers. And I, I, it's just something that blows my mind now almost to be comfortable with that because at one point in time, I wouldn't have been able to do that. And so that kind of pushed me into, you know, going ahead and being confirmed into the church when I was 14 and raising my son in the faith and all this other stuff and being confident in my faith because my pastor is one of those people. He's also independent slash libertarian. So his political um, sort of, takes on things have actually helped me in my faith as well, because he was the only person I saw growing up that wasn't, oh, well, all Democrats are evil or, you know, oh, stupid Republicans or anything like that. So I saw him not only preach and talk the talk, but I also saw him walk the walk in a way that I didn't see other people doing. So it showed me, you know, something that I had never seen before. And even and, and another thing, too, is that he's very much humble in some ways that he doesn't try to elevate himself and he does make mistakes and he owns those mistakes. And that's something that's just been very instrumental as well in my faith. It's basically been my childhood pastor really saved me with that, with continuing my faith and my husband and him still have a podcast. So I get to listen to that um, every week and it's been really good for me. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of how I've stayed in the faith is actually being told we don't have all the answers and, you know, everybody struggles with it on occasion. Mm, yeah, yeah, man, we all do. And, and and I've learned two things about, you know, your faith with God. One, it is always constant. It can never stop. And that too. And I think this sort of ties with I think what we have witnessed with the the you know, the purity culture, you will never be perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you will never be perfect. In fact, your imperfections are what makes you the rich, unique human being you are. And and who teaches you that better than anybody? Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, because you know, Jesus doesn't look down upon us as we're, you know, dirt. <laughs> he says, Look, I view you as special because I said to my disciples. You know, you all seem to you all seem to doubt me and you see me. But no, blessed are those who see me, don't see me. And yet they believe because that's powerful. The fact that we actually can go to a savior that we have never laid eyes on, but say, this is this is whom I trust my life. Yeah. Yeah. I I find the um, passages about, you know, him walking among us and and being you know, our priest and everything to be so comforting because it does say that, you know, he experienced every kind of temptation and that's something to which it's not, I mean, yes, absolutely be reverent, be respectful and all that stuff. But at the same time, Jesus was human too. And that's something that I think is missed a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very human, very human. And that's what makes him, that's what makes him the most special human being on planet period. Yeah. You know, the fact that, you know, he, he did. He was God and man, but all the pains that we suffered, 
he suffered all the travails that we have gone through. He's gone through, too. And and he can relate better than any any of us could ever realize he could and can. And that there is a comfort with that. I mean, just just think about how when we turn to a friend of ours and we talk about an issue and we have an understanding that, okay, they must have gone through this, too. And I'm I'm seeking something. I want to have an answer. At least we tell we tell ourselves we want to have an answer. But ultimately, we want connection. We want comfort. We want the understanding that there is somebody on this earth who can relate to my pain. And that's and that's what Jesus is. Times infinity. (laughs) So, yeah, I, I could totally see how faith has shaped you to be who you are now and actually how. The, tri- the the tribulations that you've endured has shaped your the faith that you have now because all of this would I would think just tear down and you actually said it yourself it would it would make you walk away from God but you know but the, the fact that you walked toward it still that that's a testament to well to God definitely yeah but and that's something too that you know one of the reasons I wrote the book is that my friends were trying to commit suicide and that they were walking away from the faith because one of the biggest things that I find with purity culture is that people do walk away from the faith. And I firmly believe that it's because they've been given a version of God that isn't true. So one of the things for me is to restore the true version of God, the loving God that's, you know, Yes, he's a father. Yes, he puts boundaries on us, but boundaries aren't a bad thing. And he does love us. And, you know, sometimes I feel like we lose that when we focus on the law without the gospel. Mm, Nail on the head. Because I always say to people, you know, think about your idyllic father on earth if you don't have one. I can think of one because, well, mine is alive and mine, (laughs) mine reared me. Yeah. You know, I, I I don't hate him because he set forth standards so that he would protect me. I may have hated it then because it was just from the understanding of like what Jesus said. When I when I was a child, I thought as a child, I spoke as a child, I reasoned as a child. But when I became a man, I put away those childish things. I didn't understand that then. I didn't understand as a child. But now that I'm a man, I totally understand. OK, so he told me to go inside at night because, well, there's dangerous, dangerous elements at night. Yeah. Cool. I got that. At seven or eight, I didn't get that because I wanted to play all day and all night, (laughs) you know, you know, so, you know, but I don't think of my father on earth as a bad man. I think of him as a great man because he shielded me from certain things and he exposed me to other things that helped me to become the man that I am now. And for us to shortchange our God in heaven to not be that way is a crime to me because that is who God is. God is that 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 father that wants us to grow into the beautiful human beings that he created us to be, but he wants us to do it in a way where he knows because he roamed this earth. Okay. This you should stay away from because it's going to, it's going to damage your soul. This you need to have more of because this is going to help your soul grow. You know, and, and, and to, to, to take out the human element in God. Yeah. It, it serves as a disservice to faith. It definitely does. Yeah. So I, I look, I could talk to you all day about this because I'm, I'm loving this conversation, but <laughs> I have to wrap this up. All right. So I got these questions to ask you Okay. in your life. What has been either your biggest life lesson or your biggest regret? Oh, boy. <laughs> um, 
I try to not have regrets because I've been given wise counsel by a friend about regrets. But one of the best life lessons that I've learned is to express what I mean and what I feel and what I believe, regardless of the consequences. Because if it's true, someone needs to hear it. And no consequence is worth losing a life or a soul. Mm, Wow, that was very eloquent. Very (laughs) eloquent. Wow, that made me think for a second there. (laughs) All right, let's flip the coin. What's your biggest accomplishment outside of giving your life to Christ? Mm. (laughs) Um, I would have to say choosing to trust my husband. (laughs) (laughs) Mm, That is good. Wow. That's good that you have met a mate that, that really takes care of you and looks at you as the wonderful human being you are. And yeah, yeah, that's a great accomplishment. (laughs) (laughs) I actually didn't like him at first at all because my pastor tried to set us up and said, oh, I have this homeschool boy for you that I want you to meet. And I said, absolutely not. I'm done with men. (laughs) (laughs) And so actually talking to him was really quite the feat for me at that point in time because I was so scared of men and I really didn't want to be around any more homeschoolers. So taking that step was definitely an accomplishment in more ways than one. Uh, Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And considering that he had a hand in in having you be healthier now and chasing away things that were plaguing you. Yeah, I could totally see that. (laughs) All right. Well, well, before I give you the floor, uh, you said that you're your husband has a podcast. What is the title of it and how often does it air? It is the Gospel Bully Podcast. It's on Higher Things and it is supposed to air every week, but um, we both families have children. So sometimes it's not every week, but it is supposed to be every week. They have a Facebook page and it's um, Gospel Boldly, I believe. So you can check it out there and you can like and put on the subscription thing to be notified when they actually put one up. Oh, wow. That is great. That is great. And yeah, I, I, I hope that uh, that platform prospers as well as yours because Thank you. yeah, both are necessary. Yeah. Now, this is the time where I say to you, uh, if you have any parting shots, that doesn't seem to be your nature <laughs> or if you have any words of wisdom, uh, whatever is on your heart, you can have at it because the floor is yours. Awesome. Well, I, the main things that I always want people to take away from any of my content is one, if you struggle with anything, you're not alone and you don't have to be scared of it because our brokenness is something that Jesus can use to show his glory and his mercy. And the other thing is that our identity is always found in him and not in what we've done. Well said, couldn't say it better myself. And you are an amazing, amazing woman. Uh, I mean, you, it, it is wonderful to, it's wonderful to always meet a Proverbs 31 woman. <laughs> and you are definitely one of those rubies. <laughs> I should say you're one of those actually more valuable than rubies. It is an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Author, <laughs> author, blogger, podcast host, and just all around great person. And most importantly, a Christian. Rebecca Lemke. It has been a pleasure, Rebecca. Thank you so much. Thank you. You know, just going through the pains and the travails of being a Christian, yet finding the true way, it can be difficult. 
where you hear things from different sources and you don't trust what all is thrown at you. You want to know what is the right thing. You want to be laser focused as to focusing on what is the word of God. And it can be difficult. And being that source which lives the word, but you're around instances and scenarios and people who aren't that way. The word says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, this is a lesson I've had to learn in recent times, and it can be difficult. It's hard to swallow up that venom and spit it out and only have love in your heart when hate is being thrown at you. We're commanded to return hate with love. And hopefully I continue to do that. I get stronger in doing that. And then when those who persecute me come, I can still love my enemy. Thank you to Rebecca Lemke for her powerful story and her testimony. This one is actually going to be in my soul for a long time. For changing the world one conversation at a time, I'm Cole Johnson, and this has been Revelations. For more of Revelations, go to Pippa, spelled P-I-P-P-A dot I-O.